But if you know Amy's mom, Marlene Litzel, or her brother, Vic Litzel, they also attend here. Um, I think regularly, probably the earlier service. Um, but if you've been friends with them at all or know them, again, that's an encouragement to us too. Let me begin with a passage this morning from the book of Acts. This is a passage I'll, I'll talk about at the end when I'm done, but this will kind of get us going this morning. Acts chapter 5. If you know anything about the book of Acts, the early parts of Acts, the church is doing both good and bad at the same time. Uh, They're doing good in the sense that there's amazing fellowship, there are miracles going on, people are coming to the Lord in huge numbers, but at the same time, there's lots of persecution. Um, There are people that are hating on the Christians, and there are, are good reasons to stay away from becoming a Christian, too. Let me read this passage to you. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Again, that's a passage I want to come back to after telling you a number of stories this morning and a very important passage for the work that we're involved in. First, let me begin by telling you our story, Amy and I. Um, Some of you may know us from way back. I can kind of see some of you out here. Um, And other of of you may not know us at all. So let me give you a little bit of a background. Amy grew up here in Huntington Beach, and she attended Edison High School. She grew up Catholic But she was invited to a high school social event here at church. And when she came, being a Catholic, she was surprised to find that young people loved God and they loved the Bible. And that was just a shock to her. So when she had turned her life over to the Lord, she ended up attending Biola University as an intercultural studies major with a goal of becoming an overseas missionary. I think anyone who knows Amy and I know that Amy, from the earliest days, was dead set on being a missionary. That was that was her calling, that was her being. That that's what she was all about. You you could not mistake her for anything else. I, on the other hand, grew up in Cyprus. I went to Cyprus High School, and I had a friend in high school just shortly after high school. His name was Scott Hemmed who was killed in a car accident, and he was a Christian, and that's what began my trek, looking for God and looking for a church. I attended the Beach Point the first time to play trumpet in an Easter cantata with Gene Bryan. He actually called Long Beach State and got hold of somebody who couldn't come at the last minute, so they sent me, and I played with the, the choir that, that week, and after that I was invited to a youth group event by Jerry Kiyomi, and I ended up staying. I mentioned I attended Long Beach State. I was a math major, um, worked at McDonnell Douglas, which was McDonnell Douglas at the time at the Long Beach Airport, and I had no real idea what I was going to do after I graduated. Okay, for those of you keeping score, Amy was leaving to be a missionary, and I was not. And that doesn't work out very well if you like each other. (laughs) 
from me to you, if, if you are a young person here, do not try to figure out who you're going to marry and what you're going to do with your life at the same time. I'm serious when I say that. Those those are probably two of life's biggest decisions you can make, who you're going to marry. That's a life decision. And then when you're thinking about what to do, of course, you can change occupations in life. But when you're young like that, just out of college, looking for what you're going to spend your time doing, you really want to get it somewhat right. And trying to make those two things fit together so that one works with the other, that's, that's that's a tough thing. If you know Taylor and Heidi, who have just been sent out by the church, I think they had a similar experience. And I think what they would tell you is they had very good counsel from friends, from pastors, helping them to know that this was really what they should be pursuing. Amy and I are thankful for the good counsel that we received, too. People like Pastor Doug at the time, um, Greg Svalstad, Scott Yanez, Art Lightbody, Kurt Holiday were friends of ours that helped to steer us and helped us to realize that we really could have a calling in missions together. Why Bible translation, though? Um, Bible translation is an interesting, unique ministry in the world of missions. Let me mention this slide really quick. Uh, we're with Wycliffe. Bible Translators. If you don't know that organization, it's an organization that's committed to doing Bible translation in the world in minority languages that do not currently have a Bible. So we don't do languages like Spanish or Chinese or French or anything like that. We're working in the minor languages where people do not have adequate witness of who God is and what His plans are without having translation work brought to them. In Wycliffe, we believe that the Bible is God's Word to us, something that everyone should be able to understand in their own language. Wycliffe's mission is to see a Bible translation program in progress in every language still needing one by the year 2025. Uh, In Wycliffe, that idea at the bottom there is called Vision 2025, and that was stated in 1999. And the idea is that we would continue to work towards sending new translators into languages that do not currently have uh, the Bible or portions in their language so that we would have a strategic way to reach the world. But again, why would anyone choose to become a translator? For Amy, she was at Biola in a study abroad program in Morocco. She was learning Arabic, and as she was doing that, she would ask questions of her friends. She would say, how do you say this? How do you um, move this word over here so I can get, you know, I want to say the plural of this, or I want to say this in the past tense, or I want to do this. And she kept doing that with the language till she really annoyed people. And then they would say to her, you know what? You ought to join Wycliffe, because that's what they do there. They really like to play with language. They really like um, interacting with people on that level. And so that's what she decided to do. And even before she finished Biola, she knew that she wanted to pursue Wycliffe Bible translators. For me, I was a math major. I had no interest in missions at all. Um, Went with uh, Scott Inez and a whole group of people to Urbana. Uh, Amy was in France at the time. 
And my goal at Urbana Missions Conference was to find out if missions was for me. And I went around and I looked at all the different mission organizations in the conference hall, organization after organization after organization. I had no desire to join any of them. None of them appealed to me. You know, you have to be really honest with yourself about this stuff. Just because I liked Amy was, was a pretty poor reason to become a missionary. So I'm looking at all these, and, and I'm kid you not. Wycliffe is W. It's at the end. So I had to go through the whole thing, and I get around to the Wycliffe booth, and I absolutely love it. They're talking about doing Bible translation, and I'm asking them questions. I'm saying, well, you know, I'm a math major, so how could I be involved in this? And they say, well, you know, most translators have backgrounds in engineering, computer science, math. I said, really? Why is that? And they said, because it's technical work. It's work where you sit there and you work with language and you work with people, and, and, it's, and it's a bit tedious. If that's not your thing, you really shouldn't do this. So then I said, well, you know, I got this girl I really like. <laughs> and they said, you'd be surprised how many people join because of a girl they like. And that shocked me. I thought that, that didn't seem right, you know. <laughs> but sure enough, the more I talked with people, they, they assured me, that I had the skill set, I had the gifts that God could use to be a translator. And, and, I, and I'm very thankful for having that kind of counsel. Uh, if you know Tim and Cody Gauchi, they're also with Wycliffe. Um, but they're not doing translation. If you know Tim a little bit, they're working with children in Papua New Guinea. And the thing that's neat about that is that is his skill set. That's what he's called to do. Um, so again, another from me to you. As God talks to you, um, our growth as Christians isn't just about learning about who God is. That's part of the deal. God is holy. He is good. He's a gracious Father. But we need to learn about ourselves as well. We need to learn that we're sinful. We're not to be trusted. We need counsel of other good, godly people to help us to know if we're really on the right path doing what God would have us to do. And again, I'm thankful for the, the help that we had there. Just a quick chronology to finish this section out. Amy and I got married in 1992. Um, I believe in those days the carpet was orange, if you can believe that. And we're still married, so that worked. Um, I did my uh, linguistic studies at Biola, like Amy did back in 1993. Uh, we went, moved to France to learn French in 1994. You might say, well, hey, that's a pretty cherry job. <laughs> and it is, but you have to learn to speak French to work in French-speaking West Africa, which is where we work. So in 1995, we showed up in Niger, West Africa, to work with the Manga people. Skipping ahead a little bit, um, I just told you a little bit about our story, but I want to explain to you a little bit how this involves uh, Beach Point's story, too. Um, in 2003, Beach Point was looking into how they could support uh, work that was going on with unreached peoples. You know, I wouldn't say it was a buzzword at the time, but it was that kind of thing where churches were really looking to be more strategic with their missions outreach so that they weren't just giving money to denominational interests, but that they were really uh, targeting 
if you will, uh, projects that involved unreached people. And it seemed reasonable at the time that Beach Point would team up with Amy and me because we were working with the manga, a group that was unreached. You know, there's no need for everybody to go to different groups. Why don't they just team up with us and we can work together? So there's a motion that uh, Vic Gordon, uh, Bill Stafiri had a part in this. Um, Ron Roundtree uh, came up with this motion for what uh, Beach Point would do to help to reach the manga people. The motion reads that First Baptist Church, Huntington Beach, Fountain Valley, which is what Beach Point was called at the time, formally adopt the Macquarie as one of the unreached people groups and that we commit ourselves not to abandon this people group until they're strong enough as Christians to be able to start other churches within themselves and beyond. And the idea of this is that they would invest uh, energy, uh, trips, whatever was necessary to help the work that we were doing so that the, the Manga or the Macquarie people would become a reached people rather than an unreached people. Well, we keep talking about stories. As you know, you're in the middle of the story. Uh, Pastor Bill, Pastor Ken have been talking about uh, the story of the Bible, a 31-week survey of uh, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And they've each talked about it in different ways. Uh, I heard Pastor Bill say at one point, the story is like a giant puzzle. And you have all these pieces in Scripture, and God's taking these pieces and He's putting them together. And, and sometimes we look at a piece from the Bible and we say, wow, I don't know how that fits in. That's kind of a mess. And then you get another piece, and once they go together, you say, oh, yeah, I see what God's doing there. That, you know, those are good lessons that I see how God's moving His plan forward. But I heard Pastor Ken say when I was listening to one of his podcasts, the story really is like having two stories going on at the same time. There's an upper story and a lower story. The upper story is God's sovereign plan. It's His overarching story of really trying to bring man, mankind who has fallen, back to a restored relationship with Himself. And then underneath that story, you have all these other individual stories in the Bible, all these individual events, and they're the stories of our lives too, or the stories of the manga people. And it's how those puzzle pieces all fit together to to bring together God's plans as He is intended. I wanted to mention that because I want to tell you a little bit about the manga story at this point. And, And it's important to understand a little bit about the manga before I talk about translation or any of the work going on there because they're a unique people group. First thing you need to know about the Manga people is that they're a Muslim people group. But the kind of Islam that they follow is called folk Islam. And what that means is that it's Islam, but not like what you think of in the Middle East. They're located in West Africa, so their Islam is mixed with a lot of traditional religion. Um, If you're in the marketplace, you might see a little kid who's wearing an amulet. And the amulet that he's got around his neck, they took to a local fetisher who's done some sort of spell over this thing so that the the kid will be protected from the spirits. And so when you see that, you say, oh, yeah, I understand. That's not Islam. (laughs) 
Islam doesn't teach that, and they know that that's not Islam, but it's part of their larger worldview. So it's really this folk Islam variety that they, they follow. But even with that said, one of the things that the manga people will say about themselves is they are, are entirely an Islamic people. Statistically, if you read in uh, uh, anything that catalogs this kind of thing, they are 99.9% Muslim. Um, there's a saying up here that they'll say, uh, to be Makori or Manga is to be Muslim. In Manga, it's Andi Amangaye Adinde Islam. And that means we are Manga people, our religion is Islam. Let me tell you a quick story so you understand their mindset on this. One day we're working with uh, a guy named Ladan. And Ladan's this uh, 60-year-old man, 60-plus. He's probably five feet and a little bit. And he's sitting there at the table, and we're doing back translation in the book of Acts. Back translation is where you ask questions to try to get from them what they understand. Ladan didn't do any of the translation work, so he's got no idea what things are supposed to mean. And that's a good person to ask so that you can find out if the translation really is communicating what you think it's communicating. Well, we get to a passage, and, and the word that's coming up in this passage is the word Gentile. And I think, okay, this is good. We'll have Ladan tell us what the word Gentile means. You can't really ask directly like that. But as you read things and you, you kind of get a feel for what they're understanding, then you kind of slide that in there and you say, you know, what about this word? What, is, what does that mean to you? So we said to Ladan, what is, what is Gentile? And you know, a Gentile is a person who doesn't believe in God, does not follow God. So we say, Ladan, what is, what is a Gentile? And he says, oh, that's easy. That's a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> In their worldview, if you're Muslim, everybody's a Muslim. If you do not follow God, then you're a Christian, if that makes sense. So everybody sitting around the table, you all kind of laughed hesitantly, but they, they all burst out laughing. They thought it was hilarious. And, and you're sitting there and you're going, okay, I understand, because to you, hearing the word kurdi, is, means a Gentile, a, a pagan, somebody who does not follow God. And so Christian for you is a synonym. I get that. Another thing to understand about the manga people is they're sedentary people. In the world of anthropology, you can be sedentary or you can be nomadic. If you're nomadic, you move around, you pick everything up, you travel all the time. If you're sedentary, you just stay there. And the manga people are the sedentary people. And the reason why it's important to understand this is because people who are sedentary tend to look down on the people who are nomadic. Because if you're nomadic, you have animals and they're grazing and you're dirty all the time. And the people who are sedentary, they, you know, they're there and they see these other people coming through and they just disdain them. They don't like their dirtiness. They don't like anything about these other people. So the manga people are a very proud people. They think quite highly of themselves, and they don't think very well of other people around them. Another thing to note about the manga people is that they're highly illiterate. Um, 
They're in Niger, West Africa. Uh, there's a literacy scale in the world where um, they rank countries for how they're doing educationally, and Niger regu regularly uh, ranks right at the bottom. Um, their literacy rate, if you go to a local school and learn to read in French, is about 10 to 15 percent. Now, the problem with that statistic is you, you can't just say, oh, 10 to 15 percent are literate. Um, this has to do with education, too. Even though people might learn to read uh, French or um, in their own language, that doesn't mean that they're very well educated at all. And we tend to find that among the manga people, you know, book learning is not really their thing. Now, there is a, a, a portion of the society, about 30 to 40 percent, that learn to read Arabic. And the reason they do this is because they're Islamic. And the Quran is only available, they don't translate the Quran, there's no Wycliffe for the Quran. <laughs> That's in Arabic. And so the, the manga people, they want to learn to read the Quran too. They send their little kids to Quranic school and they learn how to read and write the Arabic characters. Now, the problem is they don't speak Arabic. So they learn to read a language that they don't have any comprehension for. One time I'm sitting in the market and I see this Quranic... You know, a Quranic school really is just a little gathering. It's not necessarily a building, but it's a, a gathering and all the kids are sitting around the, the imam who's teaching them. And they're writing their, their verses, you know, right to left like this. And they're showing them to the imam and he's explaining what he thinks it means. Um, and then so they can really understand it well, they'll take it and put it over a cup, erase the chalk dust, it goes down in the cup, pour some water in it, and then drink it so they can internalize the message. So I think I mentioned before that they're highly illiterate and that their education kind of goes with that literacy rate. Um, I like to mention at this point when I talk to people you know, we think in the Bible when uh, we talk about passages that talk about people are in darkness, what that means. You know, spiritual darkness means that we don't have access to God. But there, there are lots of varieties of darkness in our world and how people live in actual darkness and misunderstanding and have no idea that this idea of comprehension of a language. So they treat, they're Muslims, and they're treating their own writing really as magic, if you think about it, that they can somehow do this and God will, will bless their efforts in some way. The last thing I would like to mention to you about the Manga people, though, is where they live. I've mentioned they're in Niger, West Africa. Um, that's really near uh, Nigeria, and if you're familiar with Boko Haram, that's, this is where they're at. The Manga people are a Kanuri people group. That's their larger name. Uh, it's a dialect of Kanuri. And Boko Haram is in Kanuri territory. Uh, over the past 15 to 20 years, more than 20,000 people have been killed by Boko Haram. And more than 2.3 million people have been displaced from their homes. The situation's so bad that no missionaries currently live in that area because it's just a death sentence to live there. 
Let me get back to some of the other stories. First, before I mention that, though, um, I keep saying manga, and we keep saying makori. Have you noticed this? Has this confused you? Well, it wasn't intentional, but, but now it'll make sense. Um, the name of the people, people group is actually manga. And I'll say it all the time, manga, manga, manga. And, and the problem is when you're with an organization, a, a Christian organization working in a part of the world that is Islamic, and they have terrorist organizations openly operating there, you tend to not want to associate your work with that place so that you wouldn't put people in danger. So our organization has asked us that anything that we publish that we don't use the word manga. So we came up with the word makori. And so when we say manga, we mean manga. And when we say makori, we mean manga. <laughs> right. But anything printed, anything in bulletins, anything on websites should always say makori. And sometimes we'll put a little asterisk by it just to remind you that that really means the manga people. Okay. Back to our stories now. We told you a story about Amy and me, how we got involved with this work. Uh, told you a little story about Beach Point adopting the manga people. Well, back in 2003, we were just ready to go. Amy and I had learned the language. We were starting to do translation work. We were about halfway through the book of Luke. Um, we were leaving here. We went back. One piece of the story I haven't mentioned to you, if you don't know us, our youngest son, Andrew, is deaf. Uh, at the time, he had a moderate hearing loss, and he wore hearing aids. Um, Niger's not a great place for hearing aids. It's hot. It's the Sahara Desert. It's dusty. It's, it's, it, the, Andrew's in a non-English-speaking environment as a deaf kid trying to learn how to speak English. But we were ready to go, so we were back there, and within a few weeks of being back in 2003 at the end of the year, uh, he started getting these recurrent ear infections. And they were just awful. There, there was blood involved and pus and just, we couldn't heal his ears for weeks on end. Now a deaf kid who can't hear without his hearing aids, and he's got these ear infections, so you have to take the hearing aids out so that his ears can he heal. So, yeah, we're in a situation that just isn't working anymore. He's not making any progress as a little kid, and the situation isn't really working. Finally, a doctor friend of ours from here said, you know, I know you guys are really ready to do this work. You're ready to go. Um, you've done all these things, but I'm just going to tell you, Niger's probably the worst place in the world for you to be right now. You need to consider not living there. Um, and this was really hard. Remember, Amy, I mentioned before, she went to Biola specifically to be an overseas missionary worker. Um, and, but it all came crashing down. Some friends of ours, though, suggested that we move back to the States and start working as a remote assignment. What a remote assignment. You know, if we were evangelists, this would be a ridiculous idea. You cannot evangelize people from another continent. That, that doesn't work real well. But our work is Bible translation, and we work with a team of people. We have four uh, Nigerians we work with. We have another uh, expat uh, missionary couple that we work with. And so we set up working by email um, 
from Texas, where we live now, and then I make annual trips, six-week trips, to go and to check work every year. Another from me to you moment, though. What do you do when the bottom falls out like this? What do you do in your life when something you've planned for years for something and then it, you know, it's not there. It's not going to happen. That Those aren't your plans anymore. Um, the thing that struck us at this time, and, and it's this whole idea of story and how God's story really is not our story, is it? Sometimes our story, the puzzle pieces, just they don't fit in what God is doing. And it's always seemed somewhat ironic to me that as God sorts out these pieces in our lives... He never seems to take somebody's best that they have and shine it up and present it to the world as his own work. That never seems to be God's method. It seems to me that God's method, if I can be a little bit crass about it, is he likes to allow something in our lives to cave in. And then as it caves in and we're stunned and we're down and out and we don't have any hope about the situation anymore then he works by really asking us hard questions. He asks us questions like, who's your Lord? Who are you going to follow? What are your plans? And you know, we had plans. We had really good plans. We thought they were the Lord's plans. And we said to the Lord, you know, we still want to do this work But I guess, you know, we're going this other path to do it now. And it seemed like he has said to us over the last 12 years or so, yeah, that's right. You, you, You make your plans and I will order your steps. Keep trusting in me is what he was saying. Well, we would like to show you a video now. It's a short video, about five minutes, that will show you what we've been doing for the last... 12 years while we've lived working remotely from Texas.